0: This is Forward Exchanges by Neom. What's next in moving money around the world, one global conversation at a time? Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Forward Exchanges from Neom. In recent decades, traditional institutions within the travel sector have been facing unprecedented challenges in keeping up with the demands of the modern traveler and the increasing need for globalization and digitalization has rendered these legacy structures outdated and ineffective. But how can we leave these antique ways of doing things behind and embrace technology to usher in a new era of travel? Today, I'm joined by Spencer Hanlon, Global Head of Travel Payments at Neom, as well as Paul Van Alphen, Managing Director of Up in the Air, a travel payment consultancy, to discuss the key issues surrounding the ways technology is being used to revolutionize travel and how the latest innovations in B2B payments, such as the rise of virtual credit cards, are democratizing the global travel marketplace. Spencer and Paul, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we get started, I wanted to take a minute to give each of you the opportunity to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the work that you do every day. Paul, let's start with you. Tell us about yourself and what you're doing it up in the air.
1: Yeah, thanks, Juan. So my name is Paul van Alza. I'm based out of Amsterdam, and I'm an independent consultant in the travel payment space, working pretty much across the value chain, both on the merchant and on the vendor side, on the pay inside, on the pay outside, and also actively trying to create awareness in the industry about all the complexities around accepting payments by creating a series of infographics and articles about the topics that we're going to discuss today.
2: Well, first of all, I'd say that Paul's being very modest there. He actually <laughs> wrote the book, and I mean that literally, on travel payments. So, But myself, I, I'm Spencer, 30 years experience in travel and travel payments, garnered from a career at British Airways, Lufthansa's Air Plus a company called Exaris. And now I'm, for my sins, responsible for uh, Neum's travel payment vertical globally and pushing our products and services
0: out to the market in that space based here in London. All right, well welcome to both of you. I think we'll jump right in here. Air travel is obviously a highly dynamic market and it's highly sensitive to global events, commodity prices, consumer sentiment, I'd say fairly reliant on that last there. When we say that the old guard and legacy structures in travel are struggling to keep pace with current changes, what does that mean? Spencer, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I've been harping on about this now for a few years. But it's my view that as we become more of a global village and instant access to capacity, to purchasing, to refunding, the archaic systems of old, which I know and love, and I, at the beginning of my career, I have relied upon, they are struggling. They're struggling to keep pace with the scale of our global economy. The travel business I joined 30 years ago is almost unrecognizable in terms of the impact of the internet the impact of the largest travel markets changing from Northern America and Europe now gravitating towards the East. All of that means we are looking for a more digital, more information-rich, more reliable forms of payment. And there needs to be a variety that serves the needs of the African traveling public, just as well as the very established, mature, been there, done it 10 times over, North American traveling public. And I believe That digital revolution in the way that we pay and we settle, reconcile, is coming at us at a rapid, rapid rate.
0: Spencer, I was curious just to follow up on that. Airlines and travel agents are the primary points of sale for air travel, are they not? So does it put a lot of responsibility on airlines and OTAs? Yeah, but good luck with relying
2: on that user group to be able to move at the speed that we need. Airlines. God bless them. I was born into the airline world. My father worked for British Airways. Airlines are all about flying people in comfort and safety around the world, returning them back again safely. The reality is they are not payment experts. Their primary focus is something else. And if they had to spend investment dollars, it's not always in payments. However, there is a growing groundswell of expertise, of innovation, of new entrants coming into the market who can serve that need for innovation, that need for speed, and that need for expertise. And so it's exciting to see how this is playing out, how the problems of old are being circumvented or entirely eliminated by new innovative solutions coming to the fore.
0: Mm-hmm. Paul, what's your take on the old guard and these legacy structures?
1: Yeah, I think before the Internet era, I was talking about probably the late nineties, early two thousands, travel agencies were selling on behalf of airlines. They had a and they still have a global clearing system called BSP, Bill Settlement Plan, and the US you got Arc. And up to that moment it was only in direct sales done by agencies, travel agencies, so brick and mortar, but also travel management companies, TMCs. And the overall majority of the tickets were issued by travel agencies and they were built by these clearing houses in what's called cash. It means that they move money between their bank account and the local clearinghouse would then distribute that funds to the airlines. So up to 2000, there were no payments as such, you know, not in the saying the distribution PCS, yes, maybe at the airport or in the sales office, but not for bookings made by indirect travel agencies. And when the internet era started in airlines in travel, all of a sudden that airline payment expertise needed to be built up for you to be part of that. But what I remember of that is that it was all about using legacy systems that were pretty much depending completely on 60 digital card numbers and to make them suitable for internet bookings, for internet servicing, for refunding, for alternative forms of payment. So it's been quite a journey from the early seventies when the global distribution systems started selling first computerized systems, pretty much you could call it probably the original marketplaces. Airlines were really using global computers to sell tickets worldwide. So yeah, there's quite a history there. And I always say, well, you have to respect that. And I did a quick lookup in this preparation for this session. I think it's roughly about 275 billion US is still going through those clearinghouses, both around the world and in the US. So they still have a very important role. But if you look at the mechanics of these processes, they have, well, I'm not saying that they're reached their end of life cycle, but they're getting closer. that's probably also the goal of today is to see okay, what else is out there and how can we Make those processes, those systems future-proof, so that also the requirements of today's world are okay to form, not the ones from 1972 and also.
0: I think it's okay to say those old systems no longer spark joy. Yeah, you could say that. And I think
1: that there was a really, really tested during the pandemic when everything went into the reverse and a lot of things broke down. It's unfortunate to say. And if you look at the different aspects that play a role in accepting payments, settling payments, a lot of the boxes, you couldn't tick because the requirements changed, behavior changed. So yeah, it's a time for change, but nothing happens overnight in the traveling industry because it's a global business, because it's heavily depending on many intermediaries, on standards, on legacy systems. So yeah, you have to... Really look five, 10, 50 years ahead, plan carefully. It's like an oil tanker, right? You want to steer left at the end of the year, in January, probably. But that's what the industry is like, this also
0: Since we're on the opposite side, it seems of the pandemic where everything ground to a halt, this summer has apparently been record breaking in terms of travel and booking. My understanding is that air travel has been predicted to be up by 11% over last year, which is great for the economy and great for the travel industry. But typically, travel companies don't get paid until long after providing the service or laying out money in advance. Why has this summer's record booking had an almost negative impact on some travel agencies? I'll leave it up to either of you to start on that.
1: Yeah, maybe first of all, make a command up front is that it differs very much between if you just say put all travel in one bucket. I mean, airlines that sell their own inventory pretty much get paid on the spot. Inside, if it's a car transaction that's initiated right away, okay, maybe they acquire something with them a couple of days or a couple of weeks later. If it's the IOTA clearing system, it's typically a, a two week cycle. But for instance, if you make a hotel booking, in January, for a stay in, in August in Italy, for instance, you would leave your payment details, or maybe even you pay up front, but the hotel is, in most cases, probably only paid either check-in or a check-out, or even after that. So it differs a bit, a little bit of what is being sold, and there's quite a difference between how the different payment mechanisms are leveraged between the different sub
2: The easiest way to look at this is a customer buying a ticket, as Paul mentioned, on an airline. In that case, you pay up front, you secure your seat. You're good to go, right? The airlines typically, looking back historically, have been relatively cash rich because they get paid before they provide the service. But there's an entire industry sitting behind that of intermediaries, of consolidators, bed banks, tour operators. And all of that takes time for that money to flow through, for those contracts to be fulfilled. And the stress test of the pandemic that put, at times, all is a slow and arduous settlement process at severe strain because it not only stopped the flow of money, expected cash flow didn't come in, but then it reversed the flow almost 180%. And a torrent of money, instead of flowing one way, flowed another way in terms of the form of refunds. And so that taught us a lot as an industry. And I think sale to cash is a critical measure for the health of some of the intermediaries in our business. And many of these intermediaries, and I'm taking a consolidator market, should not these days tolerate a four to five day settlement period just because it's an international transaction. I'm not talking about card here. I'm talking about the transactions that are made through Swift or through the banking rails. We are a global village and it just doesn't make sense anymore for these sub-industries to rely on the settlement periods of 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so they are margin businesses in many cases, and I would strongly advise that investment in understanding payments, understanding what options are available, and I'm talking about going beyond just simply looking in your own wallet and looking for the consumer-facing products, but look at those specialists that can provide B2B global solutions, and you will add significant cushion, robustness, and flexibility to your business in terms of your cash flow. So it's something that I'm ardent about trying to help educate the business. And let's be honest, this isn't necessarily a problem that's faced by a German business paying a Dutch business. This is a problem faced by an Indonesian business having a contract with a business in New York. How do we solve that? How do we make that as seamless as the aforementioned example?
0: Paul, how can an online travel agency stay afloat while trying to maintain this record number of bookings in light of what Spencer's telling us about B2B payments and how that can help solve the gap?
1: I have great admiration for OTAs, online travel agencies, because they are very sophisticated tech companies compared to airlines. Obviously, they don't have inventory. They focus completely on making all the systems work, making all the dots connect. And what you see recently is that those decision engines that they use to determine, to decide on the spot, what is the optimal form of payment or settlement for a particular transaction or in a booking for the individual segments in a booking. And they will look at cash flow. They will look at conversion. They will look at fraud. They will look at costs, obviously, at rebate and incentive being paid by the form of payment that they use. And they then, in real time, have these business rules decide how To pay out to request a virtual card or to push it to the BSP cash rails or to send out an invoice, and I think there's much more pressure now to juggle all those balls to keep that balance and make sure that again the sales are being made at an acceptable risk it, or cost that the rebate is optimized in such a way that it will also fund for all the activities that the RTA puts in place to accept the income payment from the consumer. So Yes, there was already a lot of effort put into that, but I think with the return of travel, with the return of volume, it's even more important to do that well. And that's where you see also specialized companies moving into that part and helping the OTAs to make better decisions and to work it all out. Because again, it's a very thin line that they have to manage or a balance they have to create there to make it work. And the margins are razor thin. So they can't just give it a try and hope for the best. They really need to do it right the first time. If you look at a, for instance a booking.com, which is very well known for its fintech business nowadays, they do an awful lot of like AP testing. They they would not put anything into production before they have tested it from A to Z. And that's for the OTAs, accepting payments, you know, creating payouts, that's core business.
2: Sure. Can I just dive into something that Paul just mentioned there? And it's around this term OTA, which is just an evolution of travel agent, brick and mortar. On the high street. But a true travel agent, again, in my father's day in the airline world and my early days in the industry, they were just that. They were agents of the airline and were paid a commission for doing that. It's due to cost reasons and restructuring of commission and all those sort of things. We have moved away. We haven't particularly dropped the title OTA or travel agent, but really the successful ones, and I'll name just a few and I'll leave a lot out, but the Expedias, the bookings, The hoppers are not really the travel agents of old. They're retailers. They're merchandisers. They're taking travel content. They're rebundling it. They're innovating around it. And they're taking the accountability and responsibility to charge a price to the customer and then sort everything else out for the customer. And there are benefits to doing that in terms of business model. But I would argue that the retailers of travel of the future will no longer be looking at acting like agents. There are still pockets where it exists at scale, but it's going to be vital to survive that you essentially price your own product in the market. Yes, it's fulfilled by lots of different merchants, hotels, airlines, ferries, cruise lines, whatever, but you take accountability for the price you charge, and then you operate as a business paying your suppliers on behalf of that customer. That to me is the future. And so we're in this sort of transition period where we're still quasi-operating as agencies. The United States is a classic example where we still have a huge amount of merchant of record for the airline, where the customer's card is passed through to the airline itself, and the airline is merchant of record. I do believe that the megas out there will eat away at that model and we'll see the evolution and scale of these players. Who knows what Google is going to do and what other entrants are going to come in in terms of reinventing the model and turning travel a little bit more Uber-esque. And that'll be a very interesting evolution.
1: To localize, for instance, uh, booking, say, well, you book from the Netherlands for a hotel in Thailand, for instance, that hotel expects Thaibaut because they historically always had only one terminal at a hotel to a local acquire, only in baht. But by actually offering uh, a booking in Europe and, for instance, offering me to pay in with ideal in the Netherlands or with another local form of payment in other countries, you create already a much better conversion. I recognize the amount I'm going to pay. I feel comfortable with the way I'm going to pay. But on the spot, they then decide, okay, what does the supplier expect if they have multiple options, what's our preferred option? And then decide either to create a virtual card or to initiate a bank transfer or again, maybe get invoiced by the hotel. So that gives them a lot of flexibility. And again, you know, I think they are retailers, but they're also tech companies, and they really merge that together into a very sophisticated model, which is very rich. And on top of that, they invest a lot in search in marketing to drive traffic to their websites. Typically, if I have sessions with airlines or with other suppliers. They typically feel they're at the back end of things, but they do not always see how much effort, how much money the travel agency spent to actually generate sales on their behalf.
0: I'm curious about what you said about the Uber model as applied to travel. Paul, you gave an example of someone in the Netherlands trying to purchase from an Indonesian travel agency. Are there any current examples of, say, the Ubering of travel that maybe I or my guests might not be familiar with? Are you starting to see that come up at all?
1: Uber is typically seen as a frictionless checkout, right? So there's the payment component of it. Of course, there's also like the sales component of it. But Hopper is maybe a good example that's basically born on a mobile device, right? I don't think they have a website where you can book and they have really optimized the user experience. They have built in all kind of what they call fintech ancillary services like freeze my fare or you know, insurance products, et cetera. And I think they are very much on top of presenting the booking process in such a way that it follows the perfect user experience. And that's probably way where, where typically travel merchants look at large retailers or other best practices out of the digital industry where they would say borrow from Sean.
2: So, sure. I don't think we can point to yet something of the scale of Uber in the travel world. I think there's a without I'm probably saying this naively, but I think there is a degree of complexity in the international global interoperability element of travel that makes the Uber model just that much harder to get scale. But I was sat in, and I won't mention the airline, I was sat in a strategy meeting talking about digitalization in the airline world and using Uber as an example about four or five years ago. um, The discussion was all about if the data is there, if the information is available to be able to understand just how many people are searching for I just use this as an exemplar, for London to Madrid on a wet Wednesday in February, then why couldn't uh, Google, uh, an Apple, uh, Alphabet, a Meta, why couldn't they charter an aircraft and sell that to the traveling public? Because it's all about the demand. And that's how Uber works in terms of understanding just at any one peak point in time what the price should be, what the availability of capacity is, et cetera, et cetera. The data's there. We all search online now. It's just about putting those things together. That's the scary scenario for the suppliers and the industry, as I understand it, because then you don't own the customer anymore. The person who owns the data, who understands the demand, owns the customer, can own the pricing, own the product. And an enabler could be, I'm not sure how comfortable people would feel about getting on a chartered Google plane, with all respect to Google. But when it becomes autonomous and smaller, so would you get on a five-seater autonomous plane from London to Paris, as opposed to a 737 or a 320? So those sort of models, the whole payment dimension changes altogether in terms of the pricing, in terms of when you get paid. And so hence this fundamental need to bring the globe closer together, more immediate. It should not be acceptable. That it takes five days to pay a supplier in Australia because these models won't work on that formula. And so that's why it's so exciting to not only be in global payments at this time, but also to be in global payments in travel. And for the sake of becoming a boring old payment grandpa, credit cards were born out of the Second World War when the American GIs started to need to have to send money home from Europe and American Express expanded at scale. And so travel does lead the fore here in terms of defining global payment trends. And so it's so exciting to be in this industry.
0: It sounds like payments aren't just the cost of doing business anymore. They have an outsized impact on the overall customer experience and the business performance of the entire travel ecosystem. I would love to get your take on what some of the major issues that the industry is trying to to wrap its arms around and eliminate, especially the reliance on something that I recently read about, the double loop payment process. What is that and how is the industry trying to solve for or with it?
2: Paul, I'll take a grab at this because it's very close to my heart and it's most of my day job. So essentially the double loop process is just, it talks for a lot of stuff we've been talking about. Merchandising, OTAs becoming retailers, but it breaks the payment flow down into two. So instead of using, so Siobhan, let's take you as an example. You're there in LA, beautiful sunny LA normally, and you want to fly to wet and windy London. So you would go on to an OTA, you would make your reservation, and you would use your chosen credit card, debit card, whatever it is. That's the first loop. And then what we call the double loop process. You're paying one of the large OTAs and settling on your credit card. They are then paying your airline, your hotel when you come to London, and potentially a car hire. So you can go down and have a look at Stonehenge. All of that is being settled in what we call the second loop of the double loop, and there we're making use of a relatively new technology in the scale of the travel industry, about 20 years old. This is what's called virtual credit cards, where we take all the benefits of the schemes. These are MasterCard, UATP, diners, and we essentially allow machines to talk to machines to highly configure those card products to improve security, to improve data, utility, and optimization of the revenue sitting underneath them. And that's the double loop process. You don't see it as a customer. You deal with your online travel agency, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of things moving, a lot of duck legs paddling away to make all of that seamless. And that happens many, many millions of times a day. And it is the fastest growing form of payments growth in the travel industry right now, as that is flowing the model I think was invented, we would like to make claim that we invented it in Malta with Exaris, but I think WEX also lays claim to inventing that model up in Portland, Maine about 20 years ago, but it's now in every region of the world.
1: There are definitely new initiatives out there if it's around crypto or central bank digital currencies uh, about open banking. But in the end, I think it's always important to stick as much as possible to existing payment rails so that you can reuse existing technology, also technology that all the stakeholders in the value chain are already making use of. And I think a virtual card is a great hybrid there because it adds all kinds of functionality, it adds all kinds of value, but it keeps using the same rails and therefore not introducing new processes. I was recently in a discussion around corporates using TMCs for payments to airlines and any new form of payment which might have advantage for, for instance, the receiving end, for instance, the airline, that would introduce new process on the corporate side would have such an impact for an individual airline, because, you know, scaling it up to a global solution would take a long time, but it would have such an impact that the corporate says, oh no, we want to stick to the process because that's what our travel policy looks like, that's what our payment systems look like. And so by creating a virtual card, either to insert it in a booking, to have it sent to a hotel, to have it... On someone's mobile phone so they can pay on the go with it. That's a huge step forward. Looking at it from an airline perspective, from a hotel perspective, from a AAA perspective, and then do an apples versus apples comparison between the different options that are available and really take a step back, to look at it more holistically, and first of all, create an understanding about what are the elements that play a role, but also do a proper analysis and make sure that it's completely transparent from end to end. That's, for me, very important. And once that has established itself, I think then, you know, there's so much more room for growth, especially on the B2B side, and there's still so much to be digitalized and to be improved, and then you can take off. But I think that's kind of a hold on here and then go on. And on the other side, I see other initiatives that are not on card rails that might work in a test tube. There's initiatives around cryptocurrencies, but to really... Bring that to the global travel ecosystem. Yeah, that's going to be a a massive effort if it ever happens at all. So I think that's why I'm definitely in favor of the use of virtual cards, but then in a very collaborative way.
0: It sounds like virtual cards could be a win of a pretty promising solution for everybody involved. And what I thought was interesting is that travel agents apparently stand to gain roughly a 25% improvement to their profit margins when they switch to virtual cards. What are both of your thoughts on the virtual cards?
2: So the cork's out of the bottle on virtual cards. It is the fastest growing form of global payment in the B2B arena, but I would hazard a guess it's only at what I call the top level. And that's between predominantly the larger players. It really makes sense if you're doing it at some scale. To give you an example, a virtual card process where you have to log into a portal and create a virtual card, you can't scale that. There's no real saving. Training someone to do that Controlling them, having the controls around them, because you are essentially creating cash. You need to have the technology to create a machine to machine connection and understand what you're doing there. But it is scaling and it's scaling fast and it adds significant value. But it is by no means the only solution. As you go down the levels, either to smaller OTAs or to these intermediaries, these consolidators, these tour operators that again sell the same core product, an airline seat. But the way the industry is structured, because of globality, because of purchasing power, because of regionalization, or whatever it is, the same seat may change a few hands before it gets into the consumer's hand, so to speak. And a virtual card may not work in that environment, but other forms of settlement that are faster, more reliable, more global, cheaper come into the fore. So, yes, I do think virtual cards will eat away at that BSP number, which Paul mentioned in the 200 billion plus. I would make a case that in the next 10 years, that number will be well under half globally, and it will be filled by virtual cards, but also direct payments between intermediaries.
1: It's interesting, I mentioned direct payments. So if you would take out the clearing system, and you're aware of this as well, but now I added it use a new distribution capability in 2012, it came more to the forefront in 2015, but it was all about basically having a direct connection, so not use it. Market the global marketplace, like a distribution system, which connects basically all airlines with all travel agencies pretty much. But to have like one-on-one, like direct connect, right? But one thing that was forgotten was like, okay, but how to then move money? Because then all of a sudden you need to establish you know, also a money movement between every single every, between an airline and a travel agency, Whereas then normally it would be three other airlines on one side and tens of thousands of travel agencies on the other side, and it would only be one clearing mechanism in the middle. So direct is in the world of travel intermediaries is always a bit tricky because that would, especially in the outside, by the way, the hotel industry doesn't have this kind of clearing house. They probably love to have it, but it's just way too much a fragmented market there. Yeah, direct is one of it. And going back to cards, to virtual cards, and I think also going back to the pandemic, what came to light, protection, what happens if travel agency it actually moves money with a BSP clearinghouse, BSP cash to an airline, and then booking in January, paid after two weeks, departure in August, in May, the airline goes out of business. Well, good luck getting your money back, if any, right? What the travelers started to do was also not doing risk management, let's say, on their own incoming payments, which they also have to do, but also, hey, as part of those business rules on how to pay the supplier, how to pay the airline. What's the risk profile of that particular airline? So by using any form of not a closed-loop card, but any like three-party, four-party scheme card, Visa, Mastercard, Express, etc., you, as a card holder, you know, virtual cards, so you're also card holder of these individual numbers. You're also protected against non-delivery of service by the supplier. So that became all of a sudden, pretty much overnight, a very important aspect of travel agencies when deciding how to pay the airline. Obviously, there is an incentive involved. They do take on, for instance, if they don't act as an HCP as a merchant, they do take on more activities, more risk as well. So yeah, it's, it's a complicated equation or complicated code to crack. But I think some of these legacy characteristics of, for instance, BSP cash in today's world are maybe get better known. Or that they m- maybe I always see, Spencer, maybe you see this as well coming also from an airline background, is that accepting, well, settlement from uh, travel agencies was always more distribution department, right? And they were not payment specialists. They were talking, they making deals with travel agencies about incentives and commissions and other things. But the payment part was always like kind of a black box. So they never really put the effort in to really understand what are the dynamics play a role, how does the system work, what are the options, how do they compare. I think that's where now teams are more put together. And if you bring everything together, you have a single holistic strategy on payments, and all of a sudden, you know, things start to make more sense. Also, I think the alternatives to BSP cash will become clearer. And also, how do they compare? And what are the pros and cons? Not only from a travel agency perspective, but also from an airline perspective. How can they make the... How can they generate sales? How can they also... It's not not only about the 25% for the travel agency, right? Because if that means that you upset the supply, it's not going to be sustainable. So you need to stay away from the 0 sum game. One wins, one loses. You need to find a way where both parties are at in case of a tour operator, you could have maybe 10 or 20 suppliers in a single booking, right? You also need to move money to them, and they also need to be happy. So, yeah, I think that's going to be important to uh, make sure that whatever virtual cars, crypto, I don't see something happening in the short term, but that there is a foundation to be built on, that both sides feel happy, about, and that there is no pushback from the supplier for any form of payment that's pushed in.
0: I'd love to hear both of your perspectives on the ways that OTAs travel agencies, they're all online now, can meet the needs that arise from this increased globalization. It's obviously influencing the travel industry. It creates all of these challenges. But what are some of the ways that OTAs can look at that whole picture and meet those needs that we've talked about today? I was shocked
2: when I went out to Asia recently and saw a presentation by one of the leading GDSs about what they're doing to enable OTAs to act more like the megas. So again, this is coming back to universal access to information, a space that the GDS is filled to a degree in the past, regardless of whatever geography you were in. But what they are attempting to do is to enable a, let's take a small travel agency in Leeds in the north of England to be able to buy capacity and tickets in Jakarta as if they were a major Indonesian travel agency. Now, there will be some price for getting that access to that capacity and pricing, but it speaks to a much more global world. Again, early in my career, the travel industries did a lot of ring fencing of markets. So some markets were just naturally more expensive to buy travel. The example always used is Heathrow to New York or Heathrow to North America, capacity constrained and therefore at a premium. And what was happening was barriers were being put in place through mechanisms in the industry so that the price that you could only really get access to a Heathrow North America ticket for twice the price that you could get access to it in other markets. And those things I think are completely breaking down And we are seeing true globalization and standardization of access. It's not there yet. There's still a pushback. There's still a defense mechanism in the market to try and retain those differences. But I think it is, again, being eaten away at. What that means is that you can buy stuff globally, wherever you are in the world. You can resell it, but you also need to be able to pay for it. And again, this is where payments comes into the fore to enable that true democratization of access. And so that is what I see as a real global trend that's happening today in the market being enabled by some of the traditional players through technology, through access to information. And I think it's fascinating because it's just so counter to how we looked at the world 15, 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, I think I was called like shopping globally and paying locally. And that applies both to the pay-in and pay-out, right? Because it could be the currency, it could be the form of payment, it could be that Indonesian transfer from Denpasar Airport to your uh, Bali resort, right? And that uh, wants to be paid in advance in a local e-wallet, for instance. But I would then pay, or you would pay with your UK-issued debit card or with your, I mean, some job is even cashing into a supermarket or whatever. And then because of it's decoupled, the travel actually takes in that funds, then... Basically, on the spot, he says, okay, hey, we need to pay that transfer company into a wall in Indonesia. And they receive Indonesian rupees. I pay in euros or in US dollars. But all from the palm of your hand, if you're mobile or from your desktop, and on the fly, right? In a global marketplace, it's always like, what's the next frontier, right? What else is out there? It's in Latin America or in Southeast Asia, where you also need to be able to pay those suppliers in a secure and cost-effective way and also in a timely way.
0: Looking ahead to the future, I would love to get both of your input on what you see in store for the payment and travel landscape over the next few years, or alternatively, what are you excited about in the next two to three years? What's coming up over the horizon that gets you out of bed in the morning that you love to talk about? I'll start with you,
1: Paul. To highlight one topic that we did not really touch on yet, and that's especially where, like I said, travel agencies take payments, they then... Have to come to an agreement with the supplier on how to pay. And the suppliers have become more vocal about it, you know, on how they get paid and what conditions. But also it should not disrupt any of their existing processes, should not introduce new reporting, should not put a burden on the staff that they have to learn new tricks. But ideally it would have all the benefits, but at a lower cost. And I think that's where for instance, if you use a hybrid where you trick the system to thinking it's a credit card or it's a card transaction with an authorization, with a settlement, with reporting, that pretty much mimics what the supplier in this case, the airline, ex- accept, but then take an alternative route with the money movement in the background. That's a very good compromise where you can meet in the middle, where Travel agencies is incentivized, where they can create these kind of payments on the spot because they use existing technology. And in this case, the airline can receive the funds in the way that they expected. Their reporting is similar to what they are same as that they were expecting. And also now the cost is below what they find acceptable. So that's for me is also an important way towards the future.
0: Spencer, what gets you out of bed in the morning? So I think I have to hark back to an
2: experience. It must be like eight, nine years ago when I first took an Uber. And I took it from central London back out to the suburbs of London. So it was a fairly chunky trip. And the reason why we took it was we couldn't get a train. And I remember the experience up to that point with taxis and especially longer rides, you're constantly looking at the meter or worrying, do I have enough cash in my wallet as the meter keeps going up, the anxiety rises, and then you have to ask them to pull over or find a cash point. And then you put that receipt in your pocket and you have to remember not to wash the trousers with it in. Then the first Uber I take, and literally you get out of the cab, you shut the door, your phone pings, you can take a screenshot of that, put that Australian your expense claim, payment there, and that understanding about making it seamless behind the scenes, still you trust it. You know exactly how much you paid. It's not intransparent, but it's seamless and it gets out the way. That for the first time took some of the theory and the academic talk and really brought it home to me. And I think in terms of the stuff we've spoken about, globalization, merchandising, giving options, let's talk about more socials, about being able to pay and see the tip that you give to the hotel person in Bali actually get to them, right? They're not there yet, but these sort of things that make that, I have to get cash, I have to give cash, I have to make sure I don't get robbed, I have to get the right change, I don't know what the exchange rate is, all of those things that come with money in the global world, I think with innovation, with the amount of creativity, with the fintech movement, all of that stuff incrementally is just going to get more and more exciting. And our kids and our kids' kids are going to experience an entirely different way of paying. Now, whether it's crypto or not, I think that's almost it. irrelevant. <laughs> there is so much improvement that can happen with just good hard cash as it is today or the currencies we know today. So it's thrilling. It's exhausting keeping up with it all but I love it. And you couldn't talk to two more nerds about the topic than the two you have today.
0: I love nerds when talking about this topic. So thank you so much to two of my very favorite nerds to appear on this podcast. Thank you so much, Spencer and Paul. This has been really fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That is all the time that we have today. I want to say thank you so much to Spencer and Paul for being with us and highlighting the technology being used to revolutionize the way we travel. Thanks to all of you for listening to the show. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss another episode. Check us out at neamcom forward exchanges or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Siobhan oneill Schweik, and this has been Forward Exchanges from NEAM.